Well, I am optimistic, actually. I'm, I'm, I, but I'm, I'm opti- my optimism is tempered by the fact that what makes me optimistic is that we're going to go through some pretty hard times for our democracy. I think that that the system we're in is not self-correcting. I think the um, the uh, incentives that are baked into winner take all and how political consultants and the political classes learn to manipulate that system, manipulate voters, uh, the role of money within that system is just extremely um, problematic for for that issue of self-correction. That was Rob Ritchie, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is Rob Ritchie, President and CEO of Fair Vote, a leading nonprofit, nonpartisan champion of electoral reform here in the U.S. Fair Vote is probably best known as the driving force behind the ranked choice voting movement. Rob helped co found Fair Vote back in 1992, so he's been engaged in this struggle for more than 25 years. He joined me from his office in Washington, D.C. Rob, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being with me today. Absolutely. It's a really uh, great opportunity to chat about the future of our democracy and its present. Indeed, yeah. So, you know, we have obviously lots of specific items to get to that are a a part of the portfolio of initiatives Fair Vote backs. But I'd love to sort of start big picture and have you as an expert in the field and someone who's been, you know, fighting the good fight for decades if you could just talk a little bit about where, like, where you think we are in this moment from a sort of political health uh, and election, you know, uh, health uh, as a nation, and kind of frame the conversation at a high level, yeah. would, be, would be awesome. Well, it has been interesting because I've worked on this now, at least professionally, since 1992, and with interest and in other ways before that as well. And the whole time, I believed that we need significant reforms, and I think there's been a strong case for reform. In some ways, it's evolved dramatically in the public appreciation of why, right? Back in the early 90s, um, people might remember that Ross Perot was running for president. There was a strong term limits movement, and the, uh, the European uh, uh, situation had changed with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. And there was a sense of um, it was time for something new, and the, the two parties were too hip-locked, and, and, and we had to go outside them, and the, there were almost a duopoly rather than 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 a, a more of a choice and now we have a sense that they're deadlocked and that they can't get anything done and that they are polarized and, and they've moved far apart um, and we need something that allows even the two parties to work better together so there's there, there's been these uh, 
shifts in what people think is wrong. I think that understanding that we need to do something has deepened and expanded into new circles in, in, in recent years. Certainly, Fairvote is among groups that has been able to get a lot more funding to work on the issues that we do. Right. Um, but I think just public, public concern about the state of Congress um, is a problem. And then, of course, the Donald Trump victory sort of highlighted electoral rules for a lot of people. How did that happen? What does that mean? There's sort of broader questions about democracy that, that his presidency raises. For us as nonpartisan reformers, it has created what I think is a remarkable opportunity to get people aware that there are systems and rules that matter and that we can change them, which is part of the American reality that quite often we don't realize. There's sort of a sense that everything's baked into the Constitution, when in fact, we can change these, these things at a state level and certainly congressional level for pretty much top to bottom. And so for a reformer, it, it, it's, a, it's an exciting time. Right. And in terms of the, you know, uh, you know, in terms of the dysfunction, you know, people think, I think, loosely, obviously, money, right, and the impact of money on the campaigns or uh, on the politicians, the never-ending campaign, especially people in the House who it's only two years, they get in and they're raising money, and, you know, and they're going back and forth. And, uh, and can, you know, can you talk a little bit more about some sort of specific, the diagnoses? I mean, obviously, we all say gridlock, partisanship, you know, call it one party, two branches, although maybe that was true, you know, back in the day. Now that doesn't feel so true anymore. But in terms of the, like, what's not happening or some specific, you know, sort of critical issues, you know, uh, how would you frame those? I think it's, you can sort of split them into to groupings of issues. Um, at one point we had a, a, a grouping of fair access, fair elections, fair representation, um, there's sort of a, a bucket of issues involving access that we can do better on as a country and certainly states like New York and many cities um, where um, we don't make it very easy to register. We, we don't make it easy to stay registered. We then have people be registered in multiple places. We right. have a very sort of inefficient system there. We have um, sort of problems with access to the polls. The, the, the polling day can be erratic. Some states don't have any early voting. Some do. Some have a, a pretty easy uh, way to vote absentee. Some don't. So, so it's quite different across states and then within states. And so access isn't uniformly consistent and efficient. Mm -hmm. um, we also have these set of issues involving how, how the elections are conducted, uh, where I think that's where money fits in. I mean, it's, money has a, an over, overarching effect on you know, the role of lobbyists, the role of outside groups spending money. Um, within campaigns, I think it's often misunderstood about what it's actually really doing. Like very few general elections, meaning the ones we vote in November, we think are decided by money. It's, it's much more sort of the inherent landscape of that particular district or state um, and sometimes the character and positions of the candidates, <laughs> we hope uh, sometimes. Yeah. But, but, it, but, but it, uh, it can have a bigger impact in primaries, local races, a lot of these things that kind of allow a candidate to get to the general election. Um, but, uh, and then, then, the, then the representation piece for us, gets into the, the structural part, the voting system, how our votes translate into seats, and how our, seriously the candidates treat our votes. And that is greatly affected by our voting system, which we often take for granted. It's, it's the easiest part of that set of things to take for granted because we often don't talk about it. But in fact, those decisions have incredible impact on how the candidates see us as voters and the power of our votes. And that's what fair vote is largely in that third bucket of issues. 
Right. Well, that's a great segue to get into ranked choice voting and and what that is and what the Fair Representation Act would mean and the whole, you know, the larger district thing and all that. So can you just walk our listeners through uh, what ranked choice voting is? Uh, and Yes. And, and, and it's, the- it's an exciting idea, not a new idea, but it's new to a lot of Americans, but it's also starting to become uh, a real thing for a lot of Americans. We, we're starting to see more and more cities use it and on the entire state. Um, and I think it's going to be on a lot of people's minds in the coming months and year um, as we start to engage with the 2020 elections as well, but and starting, of course, with the midterms. Um, so, so one simple fact of the current system, and there are a lot of variations, I have to say. We, we, it's, it's hard to talk about the American system as a single thing because we actually do have some real interesting differences that do play out in states differently. But um, the fundamental thing that they all do right now, except for the state of Maine, is, is, is when you go to the vote, you can just cast a single choice. You can vote for one candidate. Right. Um, now, there's a, some elections where you're electing more than one person. Uh, and that's sort of a different thing. You can vote for as many candidates as seats. But the, 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 basic, I, the basic idea of most of our elections, you, know, you have a single vote. If you're voting for two people, that's, that's pretty informative. Like, okay, um, there's two people. I vote for one of them. You know, one of them is going to get more than half the vote. Uh, we have a winner. If more than two people are running... Limiting voters to only a single choice means they're, they're not saying anything about the other two. Um, and when you add up all the votes, the person with the most votes might not have half the votes. And there's a whole question about whether, in fact, they're the most representative candidate. In fact, the other two candidates collectively have more votes and maybe um, one of them should have won, but they just were split. And that's the whole debate about spoilers and split votes. Uh, we see this a lot in primary elections. We see many, many primaries, one with, uh, with, with pretty low shares of the vote. Uh, there was just a key um, uh, primaries this year, one in, in races where the winners very heavily favored in November for the Congress, where they won with less than 25 percent, meaning that more than 75 percent voted for somebody else. Wow. Um, it, it plays out in general elections when independents and third parties uh, grow stronger. And we have this perverse impact that as voters sort of hunger for additional choice and get interested in a third party and independent, the more our system becomes dysfunctional. But usually their interest in third parties and independence is an expression of dysfunction or the fact that, the fact that they want something new. Right. Um, and, and, and yet our system makes it very hard to have more than two choices. So that's the problem. The solution is to just give voters a ranked choice to allow them to do more than vote for one. So you go in, you list your first choice, and that, in a sense, is your vote. But you have a chance to do backups if you want to. You can say, here's my second choice, here's my third choice. Um, this is being done in Maine. So when they vote in November for U.S. Senate and U.S. House, there'll be more than two candidates in, in, on each of those races. And the uh, voter will be able to say, hey, my first choice is this person, but here's my backup choice. And they add up all the first choices. And if someone wins more than half the votes, they're a legitimate, credible, representative winner, and you're done. If not, the person who is in last place, the weakest candidate, is defeated, and those ballots, those ballots go to their second choice, um, and uh, are added to those totals. And so the spoiler effect essentially is addressed by that. So if you voted for, you know, a libertarian or independent or green or someone like that who finishes third, um, but you have a preference between a major party candidate, then then you're about to go to second. And and if an independent or third party actually has a lot more support than realize they have a chance to, 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 to earn that vote. So it really opens up dialogue and debate 
what it does for candidates is really exciting for us too. And we're seeing this playing out in, you know, about a dozen cities have been using ranked choice voting. Maine used it for its primaries this year. And we're now seeing that the candidates actually change their behavior because when they know that you have a second choice and a third choice and that it might matter, they have incentives to develop relationships and engage with more people so that they start finding out what, what more people think about. So the winner just becomes since gets a broader perspective, gets to learn more about the candidates or to, to, uh, the voters. Um, and uh, we're starting to see patterns where voter turnout is rising and uh, issues are being debated that sometimes get ignored. And uh, that simple change is, is really having a big impact. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that the, the instant runoff aspect, you know, I've watched some of the videos you have. And by the way, everyone go to fairvote.org. You guys have some great videos that explain it. It's, it's hard to kind of grasp it sometimes without the visuals. That helps a lot. Um, and uh, it's also, I remember the first time I encountered this years ago, you know, some of the, you know, behaviors uh, that one expects from the candidates and turnout, they felt at least to me, I'm like, okay, I hope that happens, but it's great that you're starting to actually see hard evidence in places where the technique is being used and you can point to higher turnout. And you can point to changes in candidate behavior. Yeah. And the candidates, uh, one thing that, you know, you won't see an end to negative campaigning. You won't see the end of the role of money in politics. We, we don't want to, you know, over, over exaggerate impact. However, you do see in a straightforward way that candidates um, need to make an affirmative case more than a negative case. Right. So they need to figure out ways to draw second and third choice support and first choice support. They have to have that to win. Um, and that uh, means that the you know the negative attack ad is often less effective and smart to do because if you're making backers of that candidate think that you're a jerk, um, you might not get their second choice, right? So so right. so you may you, do, you need to be comparative and, and or you know to, to say why you should win, but you uh, also have incentives to to do that in an affirmative, connecting way rather than this sort of negative, hostile way. Uh, the attack politics is so often, you know, uh, confronts our politics. So, so it does sort of a set of things with this sort of easy change. From a voter perspective, we're finding it's simple to rank candidates one, two, three. It's in fact, voters are often ready to do that. It almost is easier than having to be limited to one. Like right. if you think about the 2020 presidential cycle or going back to the, the 2016 one for Republicans, you know, there'll be a lot of candidates and you can only vote for one. And it's like, well, what's my smartest vote here? How, what's my most strategic vote when you're ranking them? You're actually your most strategic vote is to do exactly what the system suggests you do, say your favorite first or second favorite second and so on. So it's really is liberating that way. Right. Yeah. You're not trying to calculate where your vote should be, should matter on some mathematical way. You're voting from what you believe. Uh, exactly. More so. So, you know, obviously the dysfunction of Congress, the age of Congress, the, the, uh, the return of incumbents at an insanely high level, I think it was 98% in 16, which I think was in your op-ed piece in the Times back in 17, um, and also the margin of victory. Can you talk a little bit about the, the sort of the big idea when it comes to this, these larger districts and the way that, that could change the House? Maybe not ultimately, the, but where people are coming from in terms of Republicans from blue states yeah, and, no, and, no, and Democrats from red states. And, and I know you have some great states where you can actually give an example, but just that whole concept of the larger district, sure. you could walk us through that. So ranked choice voting really opens up elections. It will change representation at times, kind of correct the spoiler problem and make sure the representative candidate wins. But it's relatively consistent in the outcomes uh, of just who wins and loses as what we would see now. Um, what would change who wins and loses 
is to change what it takes to win. Uh, so right now, when one person is representing everybody, you know, you have to be the biggest single uh, candidate, you know, the one with the most votes. Um, and there's a certain logic to that. And certainly when you're electing governors and presidents, there's a lot of logic to that. Um, but when you're electing a representative group of people who are representing a complex, interesting group of voters um, who don't all live in nicely uh, <laughs> uh, segregated buckets where all the Republicans are here and all the Democrats are there and all the white people are here and African-Americans here and women here, you know, like we, we are all mixed together in a healthy way. Um, but only one person represents us. And when we have differences, that can be pretty limiting. Um, in the partisan frame, what we see is that in this current environment, the great majority of people hold their nose and vote for their preferred party pretty much no matter what. Um, they, 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 they really don't cross major party lines very often. And because the country isn't split 50-50 geographically in the partisan sense across the country, um, in fact, isn't so different from that that the median county, so if you take all the you know more than 3,000 counties in the United States and put them in order of the presidential vote, the median county was won by more than 40 percentage points in the presidential race, meaning that it wasn't very competitive, right? So, right. so you, you layer those kinds of, 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 of lopsided landscapes across congressional districts and state legislative districts and even states for, for, for voting for president and Senate, you'll find that uh, actually not that many are anywhere near 50-50, and it's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion who's going to win. So we do this report called Monopoly Politics. Um, this year, because it's a midterm year and we don't need to find out how the presidential result goes in the race, we'll actually make our final calls for the 2020 U.S. House races in November within a couple days of the November 2018 elections using a methodology where we don't call with certainty all the races, but we'll take about 85% of the races that we say we are very confident that, that this party is going to win this district and we have missed one out of uh, the last about 1,100 such projections <laughs> over the last three elections, meaning that that many races essentially are baked in that you know which side's going to win. Now, if you have an extraordinary imbalanced year where one party were to win by you know 56% to 44% in kind of the national tide, you would see more, more districts shift into play. But even then, the great majority of them actually wouldn't. Um, and, and, and so that kind of what we say monopoly politics is, is built into like a winner take all, only one person represents an area system. So that's kind of the problem side. Right. So then, okay, solution. For us, you can try to redraw the districts and the, the, there's a lot of good conversation. And uh, in fact, one of our, uh, my colleagues, Dave Daly, a uh, uh, senior fellow with our uh, organization is, has read, wrote a, a great book about redistricting and exposed the problems of gerrymandering. But Dave will be the first one to concede that any reform within single-member districts will only sort of incrementally affect how many voters are in a competitive election um, because of that geographic problem. Right. It'll, it, it'll affect it, but just not as much as a lot of people wish. So if you go to a different system, which we can do actually under the Constitution by statute, um, and it's embodied right now in the Fair Representation Act, which is a bill in, in Congress, the one I wrote about in the New York Times, um, is um, the idea is to make districts bigger so each district has more people in it and then have more than one representative. So in the, the Fair Representation Act, they would get to be about three or four or even five times bigger and then three, four or five representatives per, per district. 
So that's step one to have multi-member districts who have more than one person, which is the the first step toward yep. having a, having a way to represent more voters within a district. And then we would just use the same ranked choice system we talked about earlier um, as the voting system. You just rank the candidates, and when you do that, there's a way of counting the ballots, uh, which is very actually consistent with the the way you elect one person, which is designed to have as many people as possible elect one of their top ranked people. And right. the key to that is to lower what it takes to win. So if you're electing, say, three seats, um, 51% should elect the most seats. It should elect two out of three, but it actually shouldn't win three out of three because it's only 51%. The other voters should be able to get one. And so it actually, the math is about a little more than a quarter of the vote should be able to earn uh, to earn one out of three seats. Um, and that would be a quote-unquote proportional uh, representation outcome determined by by what the voters choose to do. Right. And um, if you do that across the country in districts of three, four, or five seats, we found that it's very easy to have it so in every single district that, uh, uh, in a state that has at least three seats that both major parties would have the, their voters would have the power to elect someone in everywhere. Um, the candidates would have this interesting incentive to engage with voters everywhere in every election it would be a competitive environment where you have to, to work for those rankings and build second and third choice support across every state. So suddenly the whole country would be opened up to a meaningfully contested election where, where the voters matter. And you'd get this kind of uh, much more balanced representation where essentially the left, center, and right uh, would have the, the power to help elect someone. The left, center, and right in, say, Louisiana might be different than it is in Manhattan and, and the Bronx, but it still would be within that constituency, the left, center, and right, um, and uh, much more diverse, you know, ethnically, racially, you get more women winning. Um, but we'd be much more reflective of who we are as a country. And I think we would create incentives for how Congress would operate that would go from where they are sort of bunkered down in their, their partisan strongholds, um, you know, obeying the sort of uh, congressional leaders of their party um, and not really working very well across party lines on a lot of issues to having actually incentives to, to get some things done because voters could, could reward them, them for that. Um, not all voters. Some voters might be hardcore partisans, but they'd get their fair share. But there'd be, be other voters with the power to say, hey, I want someone to go in, uh, in there and get things done. Um, and, and for us, it's a, it's a whole sea change of representation. It's not an easy change to win, but it can be done by statute. And we're sort of, uh, building support for it. And I think up to six members of Congress have signed on to a bill that just got introduced. Hey. But that's, that's a start. And you, you can you give us like an example of a state? Here's a state today, like a blue state, like Connecticut or Massachusetts or a red state, how that looks yeah. today. And if we did this, here's what it might look like if yeah. this technique were adopted. One thing, just this is a visual, is if people can close their eyes and imagine. Um, but, you know, you, we've often seen these red-blue maps of counties across the country or congressional districts. Lots of red areas without any blue and lots of blue areas without much red, you know, usually smaller because they're cities. And, uh, and, and suburbs right around cities. Um, but essentially, all those areas would be some shade of purple, right? So suddenly you're having both sides having the power to win. So Connecticut has five seats. Uh, Democrats win all five seats. In fact, in across New England, Republicans hardly ever win congressional seats. Um, but there's a number of Republicans. In fact, they, they have an outside chance of sweeping all the governor's races this year, kind of interestingly, in, in uh, New England. Um, but they have a hard time ever winning a House seat in Connecticut. Um, if you have this system, 
they they run statewide in the in, in, the, in the current number of members of Congress, which I'll say parenthetically could be changed also by statute. Um, and uh, and and you go in and rank them. And if Republicans got say about thirty five forty percent of the vote, they would win uh, two out of three seats in Connecticut. Um, now they wouldn't be exactly the same, right? They would be Republicans have differences. Democrats have 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 differences. So. When a party is helping to, or the voters backing a party are electing more than one candidate, you'll often see some variations in, in what those candidates stand for. Um, but they would go to, to having a real chance to win. In a, in a sort of exactly mirror way, Oklahoma has five seats, Republicans sweep them all, um, and you would go to Democrats having a good shot at one or two. Um, and, 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 and so you would see essentially this opening up of, of sort of hardcore areas to, to both sides winning. For the representative, it, it means that they would be sharing constituents with someone from another party. They would, you know, have real incentives to to develop policies affecting that area with with other uh, representatives of other district and 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 really look, you know, I think more for what's what's good for the voters. Right. Um, well, let's uh, we, we can come back to some of the places that have adopted this, like San Francisco, the mayoral race, and Maine and Santa Fe. But but let's let's pivot for a moment to the national popular vote uh, interstate compact and kind of what that means at the presidential level, because this is a fascinating initiative. Yeah, National Popular Vote was a fun idea to, we sort of half developed it on our own, um, wrote about it a little. This was back, I think, in 2003, 2004. Um, of course, the 2000 presidential election had created a conversation about the Electoral College. Um, and uh, we had been out there before that, um, you know, talking about, hey, we should have direct election for president, constitutional amendment, Let's have the president elected by ranked choice voting. But as we looked, one of the fair vote, I guess, uh, ways of doing things is to say not be bound by expectations of what's possible, but to think outside the box. And so we were saying, well, how, how might we change it within the Constitution? How, how, how can we get to a popular vote within the Constitution? And then we said, you know, well, it's interesting. The electors um, are chosen by states under the Constitution, but how they're chosen this is entirely up to the state. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the rules that govern how a state chooses electors. And so we had, well, what if states actually went into some kind of agreement with one another to say, hey, let's give all of our electors to the winner of the national popular vote. So we wrote about that, <clears throat> and uh, we were approached by a guy named John Coza, uh, who was a uh, really smart cookie uh, out in California, um, uh, done a lot of... Uh, work over the years, been a successful businessman and worked in computers and sort of thought deeply about this. And he'd taken the same idea and sort of taken it a step further. He, he had the same realization that states have that power. They also have the power to go into a binding agreements with one another called interstate compacts. Mm. So like the Port Authority is an interstate compact. Right. I'm here in D.C. and right. the metro system, or you know, Maryland, D.C. and Virginia, they're an interstate compact. So it's ways for states to do things together and, and essentially enter into a binding contract. Um, and that's actually right in the Constitution that states are permitted to do that. Um, so you put these together. It's like, okay, I'm in a state. In fact, 11 states in D.C. have now done this, have passed the law, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, that says we're going to give all of our state's electoral votes, not to who wins the popular vote in our state now, but we're going to do it to the winner of the national popular vote in all 50 states in D.C. Um, as soon as the number of states that have joined us in the compact will make that decisive. So 
it has to be that the number of electoral votes in the states that are participating has to represent a majority of the electoral college. Um, the, the number right now is about two thirds of what it takes to make it binding. So it doesn't change anything. The compact only goes into effect when it's binding. Um, but if we can get more states to pass this, um, and w- I, I should say we, the American people, there, there's a group right. called National Popular Vote that really leads this effort, and they're doing a terrific job, and there's some other groups starting to work on it as well. Um, that, um, but it's a state-by-state conversation, state lawmakers saying, hey, under the Constitution, you're supposed to figure out the best way to elect the president. The current way is terrible. <laughs> and really why it's most terrible is that the candidates under the current rules just completely, I mean, not even like a little bit less or something, they completely ignore uh, about two-thirds of the American people in every election because their state um, is is clearly going to go one way or the other. And it's clear where those states' electoral votes are going to go, and there's no point in any campaigning, any polling, any engagement beyond asking them for some money to go uh, work in the swing states. So they really have this sort of you're in, you're out kind of thing. And the swing states are almost always the same states. It's Florida. It's Ohio. Right. right. It's, you know, it's the same states. So so that that's the problem. And then there's this fix out there. Um, now, the fact that it would have flipped the 2016 presidential election outcome, if you look at the popular vote versus the electoral vote winner, is in my eyes, almost a distraction because we don't know what would have happened under different rules, right? They, they, they would have campaigned differently. Um, the, whole, the whole way the election would have run would have been different if, if uh, you have different rules. Unfortunately, really, from like a, a perspective of how the partisans are reacting to it, is it's making it harder for Republicans to say, I think I can support this. Right. What's exciting to me is you're seeing more Republicans starting to say, uh, you know what? that is a distraction. The real core is the fact that every voter in every state should count. My state should matter as much as everyone else. And uh, thinking about it from that perspective, I think we we still uh, may well see kind of the mix of red and blue states pass this that would make it possible. But so it's in the hands of the state lawmakers, essentially, to have us go to a national popular vote where every vote's equal and the winner, the candidate with the most votes wins. Congress would step in at the end of the day under the terms of the compact um, and uh, provide consent to it. So there's a, like, that's the way inter- uh, compact, uh, interstate compacts work. Um, but right now it's really just a state conversation and it's, it's exciting to see what's, what's moved over the years. Does that mean that Congress could reject it? Even if it was, they, they could reject it. It wouldn't end it. It would just mean that it hasn't, it hasn't been approved yet. There's a, a, a legal theory that actually Congress doesn't need to consent to this compact and that might be litigated if congress were to uh to not provide consent but i think by the time it gets to congress it will have passed in red and blue states and that alone will be an indicator that sort of the nation's ready to do it right so so uh this is something that i think by the time it gets to congress the political will for congress to pass a statute to do it will be will be quite strong got it um you know voter suppression voter disenfranchisement, the way that felons are treated, even given some of the incredible low levels of what a felon is. Um, can you talk a little bit about your perspective on, on uh, you know, access to voting and the state of things? And because uh, we've definitely seen some movements in the wrong direction in some state in the last few yeah. years. One of the realizations we had along the way is that this debate about suffrage and access and fair, uh, consistent rules, um, 
is tied very closely to the fact that we have a very decentralized means of protecting the right to vote. We talk about the right to vote in the Constitution in several constitutional amendments about you know, women and 18-year-olds and African-Americans, but we never provide an explicit affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. And that's actually been a conscious decision not to do that over the years. The, our, our, our founding framers back in the 1700s did not have a belief that every adult should have the right to vote. Um, and uh, we've expanded it since, but we've never flipped the paradigm to say, hey, we all have a constitutional right to vote. <laughs> you know what's funny about that is I, I don't think people think to think of it that way, you know, at, at all. I, you know, I recall, you know, doing some research a while back, and you read some of those amendments, and you think, why are we restating the fact that everyone has a right to vote? Did, <laughs> right, isn't, that, right. isn't that already in there? This seems redundant, but, uh, you know, uh, it's it's not, as you say. Yeah, I mean, it was basically a truism, if anyone knows much about American history, that, you know, the suffrage was incredibly limited in the 1700s. You know, uh, pretty much every state you had to own property. Um, and, uh, of course, you essentially had to be a white man in, in, in a number of states. And even But even then, um, you know, most white men couldn't vote either. Um, and then, so then, uh, in this decentralized way, states began to take action. Um, and states began to... to, to to expand the notion of what suffrage means and how to protect it. Um, and then what usually would happen is state action about a certain area, like women's suffrage, you know, would, would pass slowly, state by state by state, and then finally Congress would say, okay, that should be a national standard, right? But, but it was after a lot of uh, uh, state improvement. Right. Um, and, and so that's how we can see a lot of differences. And, um, and, and there's Debates about, you know, does the 14th Amendment actually provide, uh, you know, the, the equal protection under the laws? Doesn't that mean the right to vote? But, but that's very much a, a, a murky question legally right now. Um, and so why, you know, many states disenfranchise, or several states at least, disenfranchise um, people with felony convictions. Um, you know, citizens who are, are living their lives as, 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 as just like their, their, their fellow citizens as, as productive members of the community, but because of a past felony convictions, fiction are denied suffrage rights. Um, and, um, and that differs state to state because it can under the Constitution. Um, some states have, uh, have really smart systems of voter registration, trying to automatically register uh, the, 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 the eligible voter when they're engaging with the state in a way that you can say, oh, you're, you're an eligible voter to vote in our state, Let, let's get you registered. Um, and, um, or uh, being able to, to to register the same day um, that you're voting and doing that in an efficient way. We're in the 21st century where the technology to do this is, is, is clearly available to us. Right. But it's used very differently in different states. Even the voting equipment is, you know, the, what we're voting on, what's being used to count the ballots is a reflection of how we treat the right to vote. It's, it's often very outdated um, and it becomes exposed in some controversial election, the hanging chads of, of Florida back in 2000 and so on. But then it sort of recedes into the background. But the fundamental paradigm or problem of, of, of not having the best cutting edge equipment is, is often there because of lack of funding and, 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 and lack of uh, kind of consistent um, uh, rigor to, 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 to making sure we have the best. Um, and, and, and all of that, I think, wouldn't be changed overnight with the right to vote in the Constitution, but, but, but it would be a reflection of a belief that we should commit ourselves to that. And that's something that we believe ultimately that, that conversation still needs to happen. Right. You are, you are definitely the nonpartisan uh, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm like hanging out the bait for like voter suppression and, and things and, uh, 
and you're giving me like the uh, the sort of uh, the smooth answer uh, you know, <laughs> on some level, but uh, because I certainly from a from a, for me, uh, you know, I feel I feel pretty. I'm upset about what I'm seeing. I mean, even in, even in North Carolina, where I come from, the uh, what was the term used? The surgical precision uh, that was used with respect to in that case gerrymandering. Yeah, but, no, and I think I mean I will say I mean I will agree that you can um, in a couple ways I can sort of talk about. I mean, this. just One sorry, is, sorry. I, I, mean, will, I will see incumbents yeah. of both parties right. will do things to shield themselves, and you see it in New York as much as you see in North Carolina, kind of incumbent protection thinking where they don't do what's right for the voter, but they do what they think is right for themselves. And that's widely accepted as an, as, 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 as a, as something that, that isn't surprising. Right. And I think it should be seen as shocking, right? Like it's like, no, that's wrong. No matter what party you are. Um, and, and, and then I think problematically you are seeing the Republican party, at least in some States, seem to uh, uh, be ready to take further advantage of all the holes in how we protect the right to vote. Um, and, you know, that, that shouldn't happen. And I think that, you know, we should be making sure we have a, a, a level playing field. Um, but I do think, I mean, why it can be a, such a nonpartisan answer is that, in fact, sort of the fundamental problem is incumbents of both parties and the political class of, of both parties being ready to, you know, shut out third parties, shut out independents, um, and essentially try to build walls around themselves. And, and I think that they need to, I think, step back and think about this, the health of our nation, the health of our government, the health of our democracy. It really is grounded in, in a kind of accountable system where people can hold their, you know, elect representatives of their choice and create incentives for them to, to serve the people and I think that there is a way forward where we can try to get people uh, in this climate to come together behind that. It's not going to be easy, but in some ways, the fact that we're in a climate where that's not happening, I think, creates an opportunity for more and more people to uh, join together. The op-ed I had in the New York Times was with a, a top editor of the National Review yep. um, joining me and saying we should have the Fair Representation Act for Congress. I, I love the idea of uh, of those reps from the other parties coming from those traditionally blue and red states uh, or districts. I think that would be that would just be great for the conversation and the environment um, in Congress. Um, so you know that uh, you know pivoting a little bit to your own journey because as you said you've been in this since 1992. Just talk a little bit if you can about sort of coming out of you were a philosophy major in college. You worked on some campaigns. And then you got into this issue. Tell me about that process, because, I mean, it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that this has kind of been a, a life's work for you as an adult? It has become one, right? It's interesting. It, and it didn't start off that way, um, I guess, if you go back to, say, college days and so on. But it was there was one piece of it which is, 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 uh, is interesting is that there was a family history of support for proportional representation um, for changing winner-take-all elections. My grandmother's brother, my great uncle, was the sort of driving force for efforts to expand that for much of the 20th century. Um, his name was George Hallett, lived in New York City. Uh, New York City passed the, the ranked choice voting system in, in multiple member districts for a city council and used it in the LaGuardia uh, era that a lot of people think was when New York City had its sort of best political time. Um, and, um, and the system really opened up at that time. They passed it in Cincinnati and you know, about two dozen cities. And sadly, in this sort of the McCarthy era, in a time of, of 
suspicion of minority opinion and of sort of closing the ranks and suspicion of racial minorities that were doing well in the system, almost all of those successes were repealed. But I knew about that from my father had sort right. of told me the story. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of there was there in my head that, you know, we don't have to do the rules of the game are in play. Uh, you don't have to accept them as they are. Then, um, you know, I was working uh, as a social change activist. I, I did believe that change was important, but I was somewhat dismissive of the role of elections in that. Um, and then I, uh, I met Cynthia Terrell, who is now my wife, but at that point just was a sort of fellow activist. We, we got involved and I sort of learned more about what, uh, what she did, which was she actually worked on a lot of elections um, and electoral campaigns. And, you know, I said, well, why would you do that? And, and you know, and, 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 and sort of got to see what it was in practice. And, you know, one thing that's really exciting about voting in an election is that candidates are out there trying to, you know, get outside the silos, really talk to lots of people and really try to earn their support and, and think about how issues fit together. You're not just talking about a single issue. You're, you're, you're thinking about kind of a constellation of issues. And I saw the promise of it. I worked on a couple campaigns with her. Um, and uh, actually, in one of their campaigns, I was the main opposition researcher, um, uh-huh. you know, finding the negative ways to attack the opponent. Um, but, you know, so, so saw the limitations of, of the system and how the promise wasn't being upheld. And then I put, put you know, two and two together with that history uh, that I had and the fact that we could change this. And I happened to be out in a Washington state, got involved in a county uh, charter reform effort and said, well, we should change winner take all elections and let's find the national group that, that can support us in doing that. And, you know, uh, this is pre-internet. So you're like looking however you had to look in those things. But, right. you know, uh, uh, remarkably, uh, you did find out things and there was no national group working on this, but I found more and more people that also believed that we should do something. And that sort of started a, an old fashioned conversation by letters and, and, um, uh, phones and, uh, and, and then Cynthia and I, uh, uh, went off to Cincinnati to try to help Cincinnati bring back its proportional system in 1991. And sadly we fell just short, but we, in the course of that, got to know a whole lot of people there. We decided to have our founding meeting in 92 and, um, we, uh, sort of started boldly with lots of interesting people behind us and really no money. Um, but we had a good idea and uh, some good energy and were sort of controlled a field that a lot of, that no one had, <laughs> had, had been operating in for a long time and uh, found ways to make ourselves relevant, I think, from the get-go. And uh, so that's been uh, way back to 92. Um, and just a special shout out to John Anderson, who was the 1980 presidential candidate um, as an independent who, who helped us out from the start and uh, was uh, a longtime chair of our board. And he, he just died in the past year, but he was a terrific uh, ally and kind of reflected, I think, what we see as our independent spirit of how we can try to, uh, you know, do what's best for the American people and, and been working on it hard ever since. Yeah. So as you look forward, um, and obviously you talked a little bit off the top about the moment that we're in, the heightened awareness, perhaps a growing sense in widening circles that something maybe can change or there are alternatives you know, I guess uh, I'll sort of two questions. One is sort of where are you in the optimistic, pessimistic scale, you know, briefly. And then also, it's just interesting to think this through. You know, what are you most concerned about? What, 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 when you look forward and you think about if these saplings don't, don't catch and grow, you know, where, where, if we don't make some changes, because obviously Congress has gotten extremely dysfunctional and, and it's very, gotten very old and all the things that you talked about that are problematic – if we don't, you know, where are we headed if we don't actually make some changes? 
Well, I am optimistic, actually. I'm, I'm, I, but I'm, I'm opti- my optimism is tempered by the fact that what makes me optimistic is that we're going to go through some pretty hard times for our democracy. I think that that the system we're in is not self-correcting. I think the um, the uh, incentives that are baked into winner take all and how political consultants and the political classes learn to manipulate that system, manipulate voters, uh, the role of money within that system is just extremely um, problematic for for that issue of self-correction, right? Mm-hmm. So like within those rules, I think we are going to see a highly polarized environment. Um, you can see it playing out, right? Like both parties' bases are kind of controlling more of their uh, nomination processes. Right. And even if, you know, there's a wave for one party, the Democrats take things back or something, you know, you're, you're still, that's not going to play out in a whole bunch of states and 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 Democrats will probably overreach, and then I'll go back to Republicans. You know, it, it, it's it's a it, it, it's a uh, a challenge for for the how winner take all a two party system works right now, and 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 that that um, therefore the conversation about changes and responsible, productive, sensible changes, I think are are it's going to continue, and we're going to have our breakthroughs. That's the the part of a decentralized system that makes it exciting for reformers, you can actually make very significant wins, um, you know, without changing Congress or without Congress doing it. You know, right. so Maine has changed its congressional elections. National popular vote for president, right? Thing, you know, going to direct election president can pass in the states. Um, and I believe, by the way, if 2016 had been a quote-unquote normal election um, and there hadn't been the kind of surprise outcome of a wrong way winning electoral college, I think we would have the national popular vote in place by 2020. That's an amazing change, right? right and, and, that's and, huge. And, 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 and huge. And, and maybe we've, we've, that's been punted now for another four or eight years, but it's going to happen. It, 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 it's, it's the right decision, and we will get there. Um, the um, ranked voting, as passed in Maine and used in its primaries and used in cities, if people can get over the hump of saying, oh, it's new and you know, how do we implement it? And look, we can implement it well. It's easy for voters and it just makes tons of sense, right? It's like, why not have people win with more than half the vote than win with 25% of the vote when, you're, when, 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 when they're electing everybody? Why don't we accommodate the choice that voters are hungry for? I think that'll, we will keep winning that. It's going to have ups and downs. We'll have our defeats and setbacks, but we're also going to have a trajectory toward uh, winning that. I think the conversation about the Fair Representation Act, multi-member districts, the right to vote in the Constitution, those are some bigger ones. But I think in the context of that broader challenge to our democracy, it's they're going to draw more attention because they fundamentally speak to the problem in a way that really nothing else does. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm ultimately hopeful on those as well. And, and, and just, I guess, confident that at the end of the day, the American people have generally come to the right place on things. And, you know, I think that the fact that we can do these, um, you know, through our own actions and, and, and try them out in cities and states and show they work and so on is, is, uh, creates real opportunity for us. Awesome. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate you coming on the Absolutely. show. Absolutely. It's a great conversation and uh, uh, good luck with your enterprise of keeping after the big questions for America. Thanks, Rob. All right, we'll talk to you later, man. Hey, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Many thanks to my guest, Rob Ritchie. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.